The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it. Hello. Hey. Hi. Hello. Hi. I didn't come up with a cold open this time. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so busy arranging mics and cameras that I kind of forgot about this part of it. But, you know, that's all right. My wife says that she hates podcasts where people banter in the beginning for too long. What? Oh. I I think she's wrong. I think, I think that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not. I mean, she doesn't listen to the show anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Too much banter. <laughs> Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Shortcoat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Anyway, welcome back to the Shortcoat Podcast, the show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose. It's a production of the University of Iowa, Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler with me today in the SCP studio. She's original, cannot be replaced. It's M1 Fallon Jung. That's me. He's got a smile that could light up this whole town. It's PA1 Noah Vasquez. How's it going? Switch to that camera. There we go. He's a work of art. Not everyone will understand him, but the ones who do will never forget about him. It's M4 AJ Chowdhury. Hello. And Nabil is with us. Yeah, that's me. I didn't get Nabil's life. I can't remember Nabil's last name. Oh, that's okay. It's Beg. Really Nabil cool. Beg has joined us at the very last minute. I'm so glad you came. Thank, yeah, yeah. thank you for opening and I filled it. Awesome. But if you thought that was all short coats, you've got another thing coming because we're also joined by Dr. Andrea Weber, clinical assistant professor, assistant director of addiction medicine, associate program director of the internal medicine and psychiatry, psychiatry, (laughs) psychiatry (laughs) residency. And she's here to talk to us about her sleeper specialty, med psych. Hi, Dr. Weber. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. AJ, you, you suggested med psych is what we're calling a sleeper specialty. That is one that many know that not many know about or consider in their career search, but which really deserves a closer look. Mm-hmm. Why why did you pick this one out as a sleeper specialty? Because not enough people know about it and it combines two pretty cool fields. And we need more people with the understanding of the whole patient in this level. Great. I always that sounded really political. I don't know why. <laughs> I sound like I'm campaigning for med psych. <laughs> Should I leave? Because AJ could probably just talk about this then. So last year I went to ASAM. It's the American Society of Addiction Medicine with Dr. Weber. And I got to hear from a lot of the combined training faculty, both med psych and family med psych. Iowa has residencies in both um, about the field. And I learned a lot about what the perspectives are of the people that go into it and they spent the week gaslighting me into applying into it. So (laughs) I I hold it near and dear to my heart. (laughs) We tried. We always try. They did. They did. It was very effective. It's the true conference hidden curriculum. Yeah. (laughs) Move everyone. I just get terrified of rounds that last longer than 20 minutes. That's fine. You can do, you can do radiology stuff and then you can do addiction medicine as a that's actually what I'm planning on doing. Perfect. Okay. That's a secondary. Yeah. Well, maybe you should tell us a little bit about medicine psychiatry, Dr. Weber. You bet. So 
there are a handful of what we call sometimes combined residencies and they're combined in which case they kind of take two subs or two specialties and then they put them into somewhat of a condensed timeline in which case after completion of those residencies you would have met requirements to sit for your boards in both specialties so in the case of med psych and we say med psych usually people say med psych they're referring to internal medicine psychiatry not to be confused with our awesome partners in family medicine psychiatry which usually refer to themselves as fmp or family medicine psych and so if you did internal medicine and psychiatry back to back, that would be seven years of time. If you did it kind of as a combined residency, you would not only do it in five years, and we can talk about the math if we really want to there, but most programs are also then your residency training is not only fulfilling necessary requirements to sit for boards, but you're also learning in real time how to integrate your psychiatric and your internal medicine knowledge to take care of people. And that's kind of based on when you do rotations, how you do rotations, what your expectations are. And yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great specialty. And I think there's a lot of different prototypes that go into internal medicine or choose that as their specialty. I think what we all have in common is most of us see that healthcare is too fragmented in both a micro and a macro sense. And we care very strongly that we want people, especially people with severe mental illness, to get really good medical care. And we want to be trained to kind of do that thing. And I think that's what drives a lot of us to do the specialty. May I ask a question really quick? Yes, no, please. That's not how this works. Mm. Of course. I'm just going to talk straight for now. <laughs> so just so that we can di- differentiate, what is the difference between an internal med psych and a family practice psych? Yeah, so both programs are five years. At the end of family medicine psych, you could sit for your family medicine boards and your psychiatry boards versus internal medicine, internal medicine boards and psych right. boards. Mm-hmm. Then we kind of get into the difference between family medicine psych and, or sorry, family medicine and internal medicine. And I would say most people would describe internal medicine as the general practitioner for adults. Mm-hmm. And most internal medicine doctors probably relatively get better training and taking care of people with multiple complex medical conditions. Whereas I feel like family medicine doctors are really expert on preventative care as well as taking care of patients throughout the life spectrum. Sometimes people feel like family medicine is more outpatient than internal medicine, which I I think is true. I think whether that's kind of a result of how medicine has changed over time versus necessary training to do those specialties. We could probably have a discussion about that. But yeah, that's kind of the big big differences, I'd say. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So my understanding of the combined training pathway is that you are essentially taking those five years, 60 months and splitting it down the middle. Is that correct in me saying? Mostly. Yeah. I mean, that's it's basically two and a half years of each. And what what happens is basically internal medicine, you're removing some of what would be considered elective time. <clears throat> There's some requirements of both internal medicine and psychiatry that kind of get duly counted. And so that's kind of how some of the time gets shaved off. And then actually psychiatry somewhat still some programs do this, but psychiatry is a four year residency, which actually used to be kind of a more traditional intern year where you actually did an entire year of medicine before you transitioned into psychiatry residency. It's not that way anymore. And so a lot of current psychiatry time is spent kind of in elective rotations. And so that shaves about a year off when you start to combine it. But total, as far as experiences and requirements, you end up doing about two and a half years of each specialty. Okay. And is it mostly focused on inpatient 
or is there an even mix of inpatient and outpatient practice for both specialties in the combined training? Yeah, so there's definitely, regardless of where you go, there's going to be inpatient and outpatient. I think where you start to, when people start to break down how much of their training is inpatient versus outpatient, we'll probably start to tweak a little bit about where you get your training done. Some some programs are much more inpatient heavy than outpatient, vice versa. Because combined residencies have to meet requirements for both separate fields, ACGME's requirements. So, for example, in psychiatry, you have to do 12 months of an outpatient continuity experience. That's kind of a requirement regardless of anything. And so, for example, at Iowa, in our med psych program, people will start doing their like outpatient 12 months straight of psychiatry clinic in November of their third year. And that goes through November of their fourth year. They'll do they'll still have their medicine clinics a half day a week, but that'll kind of be the that's to meet that requirement of a really intensive outpatient experience. But I would say the first, probably the first year of residency is pretty inpatient heavy. Okay. That's pretty nice having the longitudinal care, especially closer to the end of training where you can see your, or you can have your continuity clinic in internal medicine and also do outpatient psych. So I'm wondering now, so what I've heard from, various combined training doctors. My mentor before med school is actually neuropsych trained and all she does now is psychiatry and she said that one of the issues that dual training doctors run into is a lot of times if you want to use both specialty training backgrounds then you end up at an academic center or you're doing like very very specific work and not really much else. So how what what is the general outcomes for med psych trained doctors? Do they end up doing only psychiatry, only internal medicine, or is there a specific niche that med psych doctors can fill where they're using both their training relatively equally? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's the most it's the most common question that I think students have because I think they're I think a lot of students, especially in you know, newer generations, identify how combined training could be really fulfilling and useful and necessary. And they kind of have this question of like how does my training fit into the medical landscape? Am I going to have a job? What does a job look like? Am I pigeonholing myself? What am I going to do? How am I going to, you know, especially as they get towards the end of residency? And I think the the answer to kind of the, the biggest question, so they surveyed actually all of the combined trained graduates through the Association of Medicine and Psychiatry, which is kind of our national organization for combined trainings. And when they surveyed people of the survey responders, and I don't have an end for you, so I apologize, but, you know, close to 70% said that they practice both. Now, I don't know if that means that, like, if you read their contract, it says that they practice both specialties or if by their, you know, feeling of how they practice medicine at their current job, it's a training to become the type of doctor you want to be. And then there's also this idea of I need to be board certified because otherwise I really probably won't have a job or I won't be able to accept insurance if I get a job. And so I think sometimes people get really fixated on, am I going to be able to have a job that like I can do 50% psychiatry, 50% internal medicine. I think that lacks a little creativity to be honest. Cause I mm-hmm. think there's a lot of places where someone who's combined trained just by the type of doctor that they can be for that person is going to be really high value. So if you think of like federally qualified healthcare centers or FQHCs, if you think of places that really value integrative care, which sometimes are academic institutions, absolutely large institutions, but there are community health centers who really do value having someone who can speak both languages can kind of see the blend see the where things overlap i think early on a lot of people do stay in academics because that's a there's a comfort there there's they see people like them and they can kind of end their training and their next step is still within this kind of safe space where they can kind of start to practice their art and practice how they how they do medicine in that way 
but more and more, I think people do feel like they're finding jobs where they can practice both. So for example, if you ask me, I'd say I do med psych all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, if you ask me who pays my salary, the department of psychiatry pays my salary. Mm-hmm. So they kind of just, just depends on, I think how people are looking at it. Okay. Yeah. Hey, I want to make sure that we say welcome to Julie. Hi, Julie. Hi, Julie. Hi, Julie. Hi, Julie. Hi, Julie. Hi, Julie. Joined us from the internet. Julie, can, can you hear us all right? Yeah, I can hear you. Sorry awesome. about running in a bit late. No, that's all right. So Julie is a part of the Iowa Student Harm Reduction Alliance. Um, it's an organization at the University of Iowa, Carver College of Medicine. I'm also a part of it. Dr. Weber is one of our faculty sponsors. So I think this is actually a really good segue into talking more about your addiction medicine background and how you practice and use med psych in your daily practice. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think I'll speak for myself because I don't want to overgeneralize, but I think you know, for me, when I thought, okay, when I decided I was going to do combined training, um, I initially went to medical school thinking I was going to be an oncologist. So that was kind of my my mind. And I was very motivated by the patient-physician relationship and really kind of that realness that I wanted to have when I was doing medicine. And when I started interacting with psychiatry, I was like, oh gosh, like psychiatry is like very, that's very much in tune with kind of having this really strong relationship between a, uh, a patient and their physician. And then I think once I got into that step, then I was like, you know, I think we're sometimes looking for where can I have the most impact? Or at least that's what, you know, that my value base, my value system was like, I need to have impact. I need to figure out how I can best use this combined skill set to help people. And I can't think of actually a better population to help in that setting than people who have substance use disorders or even just mm-hmm. people who use drugs broadly. Tons of overlap between medical consequence sequelae, people who have untreated, unattended mental health conditions, trauma-informed care, people who have social determinants of health. You know, I think all the stuff that really motivates a lot of people to do combined training, including me, I found taking care of people who had addiction. So it was, you know, kind of just a lovely little matchmaking process in the, in the training. Yeah. And you do bring up a really good point about the medicine, internal medicine consequences i guess of people who use drugs having like long-term alcohol use disorder can lead to liver cancer and then you have to be able to manage that as well or be able to refer to someone that can manage it and having the combined training can definitely help out with that Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely even with people who you know have alcohol use disorder and have a history of like complicated withdrawals too Mm -hmm. i feel like that's very prevalent and something that MedSite can really appreciate yeah Mm-hmm. So, Nabil, it's actually really lucky that you came on because you did your sub-eye in med psych. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, yeah. gladly. So, for the listeners <clears throat> at home, a sub-eye or a sub-internship is where usually M3 or M4 year of your medical school, you sort of act as an intern in which you're given intern-level responsibilities in terms of, like, you know, patient management and calling consults and things along those lines. So, I did mine in our med psych unit here and I really enjoyed it. I feel like it was very fulfilling. And I saw very, very, I guess, unique patients that I wouldn't expect to see, such as patients with autoimmune encephalitis that are seemingly rare, but I've seen quite a few here in medical school as well. Um, complicated withdrawals, as I mentioned earlier, as well as patients who are graduating or stepping down from ICU level care from either mm. serotonin syndrome or from catatonia or malignant catatonia as well. So I think wow. it was... We saw a bunch of different patients who, at 
the thing that all, sort of all drawed them together was that this underlying psychiatric issues that sort of led to their presentations. And I actually think it's a good good opportunity to also discuss. So, you know, at the University of Iowa, we have a med, we call it a med psych unit. In the literature, sometimes they refer to them as complex medical units. And there's more of these units actually being developed across the country. We're acknowledging that we need to have a space that's safe as well as surrounded by the proper care team who can address both acute severe psychiatric condition as well as acute severe medical conditions. And if you think of our hospital system, we don't do that very well. You know, we we have you know a lot of places their psychiatric hospital is actually a completely separate building that's not co-located whatsoever in a medical service, in which case they tend to only be able to safely care for people who have really low grade or no medical issues. But we know that as our population increases in age, as things become more complicated, you know, we need to have spaces where we can care for people and have people who are caring for those patients who can do so in a safe place. And so I will say that when people are looking at residencies, if they say, oh, I want to do combined training, a lot of them are drawn to these, you know, complex medical units or med psych units. I think a lot of people, we have a, we, you can do a visiting sub-I at our unit, which is a really great experience. There's other institutions that are developing these units, in which case there's going to be more, I think, uh, elective opportunities, both for internal and external students. And so, and, you know, it's kind of this nice thing where you can watch what it looks like to have nurses who are combined trained in medicine and psychiatry, which that's kind of a whole separate uh, type of training. You, you can hopefully have staff and residents around you who have been trained to kind of integrate psychiatry and internal medicine into their practice. And then you get to watch how that kind of manifests and better care for the patient. There's, there's tons of jokes about, you know, when you, when you do the, the med psych rotation about, people who get referred to us from other parts of the hospital and like the moment they step on the unit, everything gets better. And it's, it's nothing that we do per se. A lot of it's what we're not doing to them or around them that kind of mm-hmm. helps to uh, improve their situation. So it, it's a, it's a nice reimagining of how healthcare could be delivered. Yeah, definitely. I, I did my rotation SNCU, the surgical neuroscience ICU. And there were many times where a lot of the patients that we, I guess, like, viewed as being problem patients and quotation marks were they they weren't patients that necessarily had any more acute medical problems they had emotional and psychiatric needs that weren't being appropriately addressed and unfortunately the culture of different units not to say that it's a bad unit at all it's a great unit and i loved my rotation there but it's just that's not the focus of care there the focus mm-hmm. of care there is on like respiratory status and maintaining blood pressure and just making sure these people don't die actively. Mm-hmm. So that's a really nice perspective to have that there are places where this is the entire focus and that we should be utilizing this more um, regardless of what specialty or service you're on. If a patient has psychiatric needs, then not saying like, oh, this person has emotions. We should do a psych consult <laughs> kind of way. But they're crying. They're don't, crying. Yeah. They don't understand. Yeah. Consult psychiatry. Yeah. Of course, their always be informed with your consults before doing it. But when it I was on exists. psych consults, that was a real consult, actually, that they were joking about. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, boy. Shortcoats, if this episode is worth listening to this far, it's worth sharing. So blast us on your socials. And if you want a sticker for your trouble, send us a screenshot. Thanks. Kind of looking at the, the team environment that you work in, mm-hmm. do you have any PAs that kind of sneak into that department as well? Or is it mainly just doctors? There there are PAs that work in 
like med psych units and practices. So for example, at the Medical College of Wisconsin, they have a complex medical unit and they kind of have a physician led team where they actually have a PA and a nurse practitioner who like provide hospital service basically in kind of conjunction with the rest of the team. In Shirley, Iowa, I I assume you guys can rotate there. I don't know why you couldn't. I, so, I don't know either. We get that yeah. conversation, I think, in like two weeks or okay. something like that. So <laughs> I'll get back to well, you. Yeah. I, was, I was trying to think if I've, I had a, a PA student and I haven't, but I don't know if that's, you know, that that's like the, the end of one, right? So, but yeah, I mean, I think the, just as we have multiple types of healthcare providers, I think every specialty is needing to kind of incorporate figure out what to like how to best optimize everyone up to the maximum of their license for better cares for the patients because you know there's more people needing us and and, you know less of us going around and pretty much you know most specialties especially ones that are considered primary care Mm -hmm. cool I bet you've had PAs. They're they're hard to recognize in this environment. Uh, where, <laughs> I've had a lot of I've had a lot of PAs in my addiction medicine clinic, and yeah. I, I love it. Well, they're trained together here, and also there are twenty five of them versus one hundred and fifty. So yeah. you know, yeah, so we're, we're kind of few and far between. But so yeah. in a in a perfect world, do you see um, all kind of doctors using using this kind of cross specialty thinking process when it comes to patients, or how how do you kind of see that? Could that be changing? coming up or what do you kind of see happening in the future with that yeah you know i think there's a growing interest in combined training and to be honest we know that by the numbers just because it used to be that internal medicine like didn't i mean nationwide didn't fill every year and now it's much more competitive than it used to be as far as you know fill rates and, and people at least not matching into a combined program but to that being said like i i i'm glad that this exists but i also believe that there is a way to be a really medically informed psychiatrist or to be a psychiatrically informed internal medicine doctor. So I don't really believe that like the only path forward is to have everyone be combined trained. But I think if you think of people having done combined training just because they have maybe that that kind of passion, that's where they are, that's that's what they want to do. You know, hopefully if there's more people and it kind of if we're at, you know dispersed in places, hopefully that kind of elevates the culture you know, kind of create Venn diagrams around the place where you don't need to be psychiatrically board certified to provide really well-informed depression care or to be trauma-informed or be a great addiction medicine doctor, right? And so I, I think having us is great. I think having the opportunity to do it is great. And I think there are certain healthcare systems that are really going to benefit from us, especially as we go more towards value-based healthcare, which I think a lot of people feel is kind of the future. I think people feel like we should have been there already, but we're kind of getting there slowly. In which case, I think there there will be more opportunities for people who are combined trained to start to be champions of how do we provide better care with less resource for people. And one of those ways might be just to have people who say, you know, I know how to, you know, treat diabetes in someone who's also struggling with their schizophrenia, right? I know how to balance the use of certain medicines that might be, you know, obesity creating while they're also trying to manage other things. Those are just examples. Julie, you're a PA. PA1, right? Yeah. I didn't want to miss a trick because you, you know, Noah had talked about opportunities for PAs in in med psych and you are clearly taking advantage of that sort of area as by being a part of the Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and your experience? And yeah. Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition is another organization separate from ishrar iowa student harm reduction alliance it's not affiliated with the university right right so Mm -hmm. tell us about that 
Yeah. So basically the Iowa Student Harm Reduction Alliance, well, we previously helped out with harm reduction efforts around Eastern Iowa by making deliveries of harm reduction supplies, including things like needles or fentanyl test strip, naloxone um, overdose kits and the like to residents around the area. We have pivoted recently towards more advocacy and education, just as general policy has changed since lately we've been facing some difficulty with changes in legislation where it's a lot harder for us to get supplies as usual. Yeah. And I would say that being a PA versus being a medical student hasn't really made much difference in terms of like how I can get involved since it's something that I personally care about, whether or not we're providing um, support towards uh, people who use drugs in the community. So it's been just an experience of finding ways that we can still be involved. And I will say too, that sometimes people have a question of, if I do med psych, can I specialize? Like, could I still do a fellowship if I wanted to do a subspecialty? And you can graduate from a combined residency and from an internal medicine uh, psychiatry standpoint, you're basically qualified to apply to any fellowship in both specialties that you would like to do. So we've had graduates who, I mean, there's, you know, nationwide, there have been people who have done pulmonology critical care fellowship after med psych training. My, in my cohort, it was me and Vic Padaval and Vic was very focused. You know, he knew he kind of wanted his career to be in GI. He specifically really had a passion for caring for people who had functional bowel disorders as well as inflammatory bowel disorders. And so he knew that the comorbidity between psychiatric and kind of care of their GI systems was very ingrained. And so he's purposely did med psych, then subsequently did GI fellowship afterwards. You're also qualified to do any psychiatric fellowship that you would like to. So a lot of opportunity. I think it's it's five years of residency, in which case sometimes people by the end of it, they're like, I'm good. You know, <laughs> I'm good. I don't, I don't need any more fellowships. I'm yeah. good. But, you know, some people, I, I, you know, sometimes people have a very clear path of where they're trying to head with their medical career. And you are, you know, the, the, all those opportunities are still available to you. I want to go back to what you just said. You said there's a strong connection between GI and med psych uh, or, or, or psychiatric comorbidities. Is that mm-hmm. what, am I interpreting that? Mm-hmm. How come? Oh, probably a lot of ways. If you think of, especially if you think of like inflammatory bowel diseases, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of comorbidity with depression and anxiety with people who have, if you think of them as autoimmune conditions, and that kind of goes beyond whether it's a primarily GI affected autoimmune disease. A lot of the treatments we utilize for autoimmune conditions also affect people's psychiatric health. There's an entire research area as far as kind of the the, the brain gut connection. When we see people who get New manifestations after GI procedures, they, a lot of our medications that we utilize can have GI interaction. So I honestly don't feel like I even know enough because it's such a growing field to speak intelligently with it. That's all right. (laughs) We we always, I I always make sure to tell people that we opine on this (laughs) podcast more than we talk about facts. Medicine is too big, I think, a field for, certainly for medical students and for an administrative services coordinator (laughs) to know all the things and even <laughs> well, physicians. I mean, you know, yeah, I, with I mean, the doubling time of medical knowledge. Hey, welcome to the construction people <laughs> from next door. Well, I was going to say, I mean, even just as a, you know, if, if you consider yourself a fellow human, right. If you've ever been so nervous or anxious about something that your stomach has hurt or you felt like you wanted to throw up, right. Yeah. That's a you know classic brain gut connection. So. Right. Hmm. Right. 
It's a really good thing to bring up. In my experience in the med psych unit, what I've seen is that we also have a connection with like surgery as well for for patients who have you know really bad anxiety and some of their coping mix, me, um, mechanisms include you know swallowing objects and things like that. So they would require multiple surgeries, abdominal surgeries, and managing that also is sort of how GI sort of plays a way yeah. in med psych, I believe. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and psychiatric disorders can just manifest in so many different ways. Nabil, you bring up a really good point. Like, you need to be able to identify just how severe the psychiatric disorder may contribute to any kind of medical illness or surgical disease. Like, for example, I had a patient with an eating disorder that I took care of in IR because she was eating her hair and got a bowel obstruction from it and needed surgery and during the surgery there was a complication and she was about to bleed out and IR had to be called in to be able to tamponade it so vascular search could come in and do the repair and then after that there was a lot more interaction post-operatively in the long term with psychiatry than with IR general or vascular surgery because that is what needed to be addressed so that she could have good gut health and not have another massive bleed like that. I would say too that a lot of people who do combine training because we feel so strongly, especially for equitable care for people, maybe despite their kind of, especially their psychiatric conditions, just because those tend to be highly stigmatized, highly misunderstood. Mm-hmm. We spend a lot of time advocating for our patients with other specialties sometimes to say, hey, you know, for example, just because someone has a substance use disorder, you know, doesn't mean that they don't qualify to go home with a indwelling pick. If that's, you know, or a percutaneous line, that would be the best treatment option for their antibiotics, for example. You know, we we spend a lot of time trying to communicate, talking the lingo of our specialties and really trying to say, hey, um, this person's optimized. You know, they're ready for this. We've talked to them at length about this, as well as, you know, really starting to question, are you are you making this medical decision because of their psychiatric illness? In which case, I think we should have a conversation about what that means and, you know, really trying to promote that everyone's getting really good health care. And we do spend a lot of time doing that. I think a lot of us feel extremely passionate about that. And if you spend any time on the med psych unit, you'll likely see us, you know, talk to a lot of, whether it's surgical specialties or subspecialties, you know, about really oftentimes advocating for intervention that I think because of someone's psychiatric condition makes our colleagues nervous or they worry about the outcome. Mm-hmm. They worry that, you know, things aren't, aren't going to go very well. Yeah. And outcomes is also another good point. Like thinking of like PAD peripheral arterial disease patients in IR and cardiology and vascular surgery. A lot of those patients have a difficult time with complying with their care. And it makes me wonder, do we need to, as uh, more interventional specialists, have a better background in addressing the psychiatric needs of our patients? And if so, like what are some ways that doctors and other specialties would be able to get better informed on the psychiatric needs of the patients beyond doing their psych rotation in med school? Mm. Yeah, that was actually my question. So as it stands right now, what is the training that people that don't do dual residencies, what training do they have in psych or even just addressing the what one might call like the emotional or side of patients right because Mm -hmm. everybody has I don't know funny feelings sometimes regardless of whether it is clinical or not and being able to deal with that 
not is important as a cardiologist or as an IR or like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what training do people get right now? Oh, mm. it doesn't sound like a lot. <laughs> not a, not okay. Yeah, that's so good. <laughs> so much is said with one. Not, not <laughs> enough. No, I, I, and I think what you're what you're pointing out is that you know there's there's a psychiatric condition and then there's just acknowledging that we're we're all humans and we right. all have behaviors and psychology is real and we like are all complicated mm-hmm. and most of us at times make decisions that are not in line with our health <laughs> um not because we don't care about our health but because you know life's complex and we're balancing a lot of kind of uh, things that we want to do um and so like i think that for example, I think more primary care specialties in particular are starting to kind of incorporate more things like how do I provide trauma-informed care, which isn't so much a psychiatric thing as much as how do I create an environment that takes into account that a lot of people have experienced trauma and how they respond to healthcare is sometimes manifested in that trauma. And there might be ways that we can set up our care that allows them to feel safer, which then will allow them to be more adherent to the care plan and, and listen to us and come back for clinic visits. Right. And then it'll make our staff happier and everyone's, everyone's just mm-hmm. much better. But then even if you think of other things like smoking cessation, you know, I think there's a lot of behavioral things that, you know, a lot of things that we do day to day, if we had a workforce that was not only so trained, but I think, I think reinforced by money and time mm-hmm. to focus on those things. I think we'd have a very different population health perspective. I think that, so that, you know, that's like a macro level thing of, you know, we, it's easy to kind of point to the doctor and say, you need to get more training and this thing. But I also feel like we need to start advocating for more shifts in medicine where people are being reinforced to say, Hey, it's more important that I spend 25 minutes doing motivational interviewing around this person smoking than it is to make sure that I've, you know, checked all of these boxes as far as labs and doing the biop, you know, doing the, the, the kind of, you know, the interventional stuff rather than the preventative stuff that I think is really important, but it takes the stuff that we don't get necessarily reinforced to do, which is time. Uh, But I think more and more specialties, I think most of the time you do your training and where you do your training is probably going to impact how much maybe behavioral training you get, psychiatric training you get. And then I think beyond after residency, if you kind of get into your practice and you say, oh shoot, like I've decided to take a job and I'm in an area in which the population is deeply affected by something. You know, there's tons of CME, you know, continuing medical education. You know, there's conferences, there's, you know, institutional outside of institution. Now there's tons of virtual options where I think people, you know, expertise is much more available for people to get that additional training outside of residency. But I will say that the moment you leave formal training, changing your practice just gets a lot harder, (laughs) you know? Yeah, you have to really start to recognize that you need to seek... Yes. Life, what training you need to seek out. Is and, real. Right. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's hard and it's real. Um, absolutely. Well, you made it to the second break. You tolerate us. If you can, consider donating or buying a sticker or something. Visit theshortcoat.com and help us do stuff without having to beg a dean for money. Thanks. So it's, it's some two first years and fourth years and everything. It Us just starting out, what's some advice you'd give for us to so we can start making those steps and being more conscious towards those types of patients? Oh, wow. You know, you guys, you know, I think every every season has its has its deserved focus, right? And I think in the season that you guys are in, I think the fact that I would actually just encourage you to learn how to take really good care of yourself and of your family and attend to your own well-being, because I think that's also a skill that 
to be honest, in medicine, we haven't fostered it in a long time. And I think our workforce is, you know, is suffering from it. So I think honestly, the best, that's probably what I would say to you guys is, you know, take, you know, take your education seriously. Think of it as education, as kind of learning, a, you know, learning an art of something that's going to be your career eventually. And then you'll learn how to take care of yourself despite, you know, demands being made on you. And if you learn how to do that, that'll just kind of be exponentially. I think as you get into your clinical rotations, I think that's really a time to start integrating, to start practicing. How do I translate all this medical knowledge I'm learning or have already learned to a person who doesn't have any medical training? Because, you know, ultimately we're all teachers and we're teachers to our patients. And I think communication, you can be the smartest person in the room. And if you can't communicate that to anyone, then you're you know, you're kind of a waste to a certain degree, not, not as you as a person, but like your, your knowledge is just, it could not, it needs to be optimized by really great communication. I think that's the ability to practice that. I think paying attention on clinical rotations to everyone around you and how they interact is really important. I mean, there's, you know, we talk about hidden curriculums all the time, but there's an entire process going on of watching who are these people I want to be like, whether it's kind of how they are as a colleague, how they are a doctor, a proceduralist, how they work through a differential and then, you know, unfortunately, sometimes you're also going to encounter people that are like, oh, now I know what not to do. <laughs> now I, that, that's, that, that does not work. Now I know why. And I'm going to you know file that away later. And unfortunately, that happens, too. Maybe also try to figure out where the gaps are that yeah. you're, you know, mm-hmm. outside of the people who aren't doing well. You know, there are, there are always going to be, I imagine, things that you can identify that's like, OK, oh, we're yeah. not doing this well here. Or, Fresh eyes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we get so ingrained with the with the system, even like, I mean, You'll you'll speak with residents who are so used to how the University of Iowa functions that you like will ask them like, well, why do we do it like this? And they're like, I don't know. That's just it's the way we done like, it. Yeah. I'm, like mm-hmm. I'm like they're like they're probably just like I'm survival mode right now. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, like yeah, I'm yeah. I'm just someone told me this is how to do it and this is how I've done it and like it's just in my brain, right? But I've never really taken a step. So yeah, I do think as a student, you 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 don't know like you know it, 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 there are fresh eyes and fresh ideas that can come from that, and then. I but also medical students often fill gaps just by the amount of time that they have to, to you know, devote to their patients that maybe the attendings don't have or the, even the mm-hmm. residents don't have. That's true. That's true. And so if you find yourself filling that sort of gap, you can, you know, you can th- sort of store that away as something that you can pay attention to Yes. further along in your career Yes. when you're not in survival mode so much. I mean, gosh, that almost makes me think like, for students like you know the m2s that are like just started in a clinic who are going to have a ton of time with patients because you know they don't have a, a ton to do um like that almost makes me wonder like should we right now be getting training in in classes like math that's what uh, i was thinking too for like trauma-informed care whatever the case is so that mm-hmm. we're talking to patients with some sort of idea of like how to be appropriate and how to really address their needs and concerns instead of sort of just winging it because we're students. And Spoiler alert, that does come up as an M2 before you start working. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah just, I, I will say that because I, I participate in some of the trainings that you guys end up doing before you enter, enter into clerkship years compared to when I was a medical student, which Relatively speaking, was not that long ago. I, you know, graduated medical school in 2012. But like, did you go here? Yeah, okay. you guys get so much more. What I would consider like cultural, 
policy, advocacy, social determinants of health, this, this, you know, I hate to call it soft science because I, I don't know a better term for it, but just kind of that stuff of the art of how you apply medical knowledge rather than just regurgitating medical facts and kind of memorizing the algorithm for treating something. So I think, yeah, that, that, that does come. I think there's always, I mean, I'm completely biased and very knowingly biased. <laughs> there's, there's always room for more. <laughs> um, but I was going to say too, that I think as, because we're talking about a specialty episode, right? Is I think as you get into your clinical rotations too, I think paying attention to how you feel on certain rotations. You know, am I am I curious? Am I engaged? Do I leave my work day being like that was great? Like I, I'm 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 reinforced regardless of hours spent there. Like, am I energetic? Was that like awesome? Because I think those feelings are really what should hopefully inform. And I think sometimes that can you know there's 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 you know, outliers as far as like, well, maybe there's interpersonal dynamics, which kind of in, you know, either increase or decrease a specialty for you based on your rotation. But I think globally, the the best advice I ever got, which was from one of the counselors that used to be here was like, you know, pick the specialty, understand what the most common thing that that person does. And if that's something that just like, oh my gosh, I love this. I could do this all day long, right? Like I love everything about this. You've probably found a really close, good specialty for you. So for example, one of my good friends is an orthopedic surgeon and gosh, he loves the knee. He like <laughs> he he would like knee pain is his jam. He loves it. He loves talking about the knee. He loves like educating patients on the knee and like it's his jam, right? Which is great because he's a orthopedic surgeon and you know, that really informs that. I love talking to people about substance use disorders. I love talking to people about drugs. I love talking to people about mental health conditions. Um, so I love all of the like, you know, preventative medicine stuff, talking to people about managing lifestyle. So, and I found that in, ter- in internal medicine, psychiatry. So I think just paying attention to that stuff that you're like, Oh, I could talk about this all day long. <laughs> you know, like I could see this all day long. This is great. I think just paying attention to that feeling that you have can then hopefully make, make a selection process a lot easier for you. But that's good advice. I, we have talked with some of my PA classmates and just like since we go on rotations in this December or in this coming January, we're all kind of joking around. OK, what are you going to do? What do you want to do? <laughs> One of our classmates, she said at the first semester, we're all going to record ourselves and say this is what we want to do. Oh, this every is semester. great. Yeah. yeah. And every semester we're going to change it or we're going to do it again and see if anyone changes. And with something's kind of good about PA is it at least that kind of drew me to it is I can jump between specialties, but it also makes it very difficult because there's everything's out yeah, there. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that really helped a lot hearing that. Like, okay, I'm thinking internally, what what do I like to do? What are yeah. those kind of things? So that, that's good advice. Yeah. What skills or qualities do you think are essential for success in med psych? <laughs> I mean, I can say as a, especially as a, you know, an associate program director for a residency. I think people have to, I think, have a really good understanding of what they want to do with combined training. I think there's a vision that people need to have. It doesn't have to be perfect, but because there's a dedication of time, I think, when people decide to do a combined training specialty, knowing that it's five years, knowing that you're going to watch other people that you start residency with in internal medicine, psychiatry, you're going to watch them graduate before you, you're going to watch them start to make money before you and, you know, potentially have easier schedules than you will for, for periods of time. And so... I think having a sense of what what that kind of looks like for you and what you you know why is it important to you and I and I really think it has to be intrinsic it has to regardless of jobs and you know um, uh, 
kind of how healthcare is set up. I think it has to be something that like there's a reason that intrinsically you value having that type of training. I think to be a, an effective internal medicine psychiatry doctor, I think you have to be flexible. I think you have to be able to be very fluid, both with patients as well as with like structures and even the, the training of med psych. You know, it's a you're you're jumping between specialties sometimes every few months. And so being able to confidently both have grace with yourself to say like, hey, I'm I'm going back to my internal medicine rotations. I'm going to be with people who have had only internal medicine and I've been off on psychiatry for a while. I think having grace with yourself and having some confidence, be like, oh yeah, it's like a bicycle. I'll get back on there, right? It's a little rusty now because I've been, you know, primarily focusing on, you know, psych care, for example, but um, I'm going to get back with it. And so, and I think people have to be really, I really value collaboration. I really value, I think people need to be, you know, humans first, which I... I think that about all doctors, but I think especially in internal medicine psychiatry, because the people, the success in that field, you really have to like humans and see humans in a way that hopefully you see the best of them. You you see potential and you care about them and acknowledging that you might be someone who can help them kind of gain access to a you know better care, better you know lifestyle, whatever the case is. And so, you know, people who are caring, flexible, and I think hopefully having like a really clear vision of like, why am I signing up for a combined training specialty? Like I could just do internal medicine and be done in three years, or I could just do categorical psychiatry and not do ICU call. That sounds like a you know, better option in some ways. So. Well, speaking of call, what would you say is the sort of lifestyle after training is complete for a med psych doctor? You know, it's a hard question to answer because I think there's so many, uh, options with this training. Yeah. You know, I think I know people who do only outpatient care. I know people who provide, they're kind of integrated into an outpatient psychiatry clinic. I know people who are hospitalists who, you know, after a residency, for example, I was a hospitalist up at St. Luke's hospital, which is part of the Unipoint healthcare system in Cedar Rapids. So just North of Iowa city. And I worked, you know, 16 shifts a month. I was worked on the inpatient psych unit for four days a month. I worked on the inpatient medicine units for eight uh, days a month. And then once a week, I was over at the addiction medicine treatment program up there. And so I did kind of everything and kind of had had a little bit of and it was it was great. It was shift work. I still had nights, but it was like a, a night shift. I wasn't necessarily you know, there for, for longer than a 12 hour stint for, for example. But I, I really think it's, there's, there's a lot of possibility for people depending, depending on kind of what works for their life, what works best for, you know, I think you'd be silly not to think about money and, you know, what, what does my family need? What do I need? And the kind of maybe what populations you want to service. Yeah. You could be a critical care psychiatrist. You could. <laughs> you Interventional could. psychiatry. Yo, <laughs> I might need to go back on your ass tonight. <laughs> you could. No, uh, Dr. Zabner, who is one of our uh, critical care pulmonary staff here, he always said, you know, the he's like, oh, you could, you know, combined trained people should do critical care because there's so much, you know, need to pay attention to people's, you know, psychiatric care while they're in the ICU based, you know, even just think about things like delirium and the, mm-hmm. the trauma that critical illness and ICU mm-hmm. can incur to people, the fact that a lot of them are requiring ICU care potentially for, you know, toxidromes or things that might happen related to their mental health conditions. So, yeah, I can uh, I can testify. I, I have it's been a while since I've mentioned this on the show, but many years ago I was in the ICU for three weeks and, and you know, on a ventilator and everything. And it was super traumatic. Mm-hmm. And 
Yeah, I mean, you know, in the beginning, the, the focus is on keeping you alive. But then after that's after that crisis is sort of passed and you're sort of coming to yourself, it's helpful to have some psychiatric support mm-hmm. even while you're still in the ICU. I mean, it's crazy what happens. Oh, yeah. No, thank you for sharing. Yeah, it's I think we're just like I think it's like tip of iceberg how much we're understanding, how much we don't understand what the brain is taking in yeah while people are oh, especially yeah. intubated in the icu for I, sure i think we just like oh they're just pleasantly sleeping and Ew. you know they just wake up and everything's hunky dory when I we decide to wake them up and it's like <laughs> no i i i it's it's a laudable goal i don't i don't think i can tell you that that's that no. that's how it that that that's how it is yeah mm. my experience in the icu i have had uh, some great advice from a psychiatry consulting doctor who says that in the icu specifically hypoactive delirium gets missed all the time all the time because usually hyperactive delirium is you know more noticeable and things like that and just keeping so are these people who are essentially passive but still delirious and then is that what that means usually like and dr weber can correct me when it comes to this you know just literally what it means like hypoactive where they're you know they're still confused they're still unsure of where they are and things like that but that they're just <clears throat> i guess not making it noticeable mm-hmm. to the medical team yeah, sure yeah they're yeah, I know. I think you described it well. You know, we we think of hyperactive like those are the people who are, you know, pulling out their IVs and yelling and you know bringing a lot of attention to themselves, and that's where you know, they get the attention. But there are plenty of people who are physically calm and sitting there, and you think that they're understanding and registering what you're talking to them about, but you realize, like, if you really pushed them and maybe did some testing afterwards, you'd realize that in the same way they're very inattentive they're not registering information they're a lot of times they're very kind of apathetic you know they they sometimes we get consulted in psychiatry in the ic because people think that people are depressed and we're like oh no they're just they're just kind of pleasantly calmly confused um and they're not you know participating in yeah. that way we have to say goodbye to fallon she's got to go off to do her her thing bye fallon mm-hmm. I'm like slightly panicking now looking back at all my neuro stroke patients and thinking, (laughs) oh, God, did I just miss a bunch of delirium? You know, that's why we have specialists, right? That's why we have different people with different experiences and trainings, because not everyone can know everything. And most of the time, if we get, you know, it's, it's like the classic psychiatry gets consulted and someone's been in the hospital for a week and they've been critically ill. If it's like, oh, we're worried this person's depressed, it's usually... We kind of honestly teach our residents like you need to sufficiently rule out that they're not delirious before we even have a discussion about, you know, primary mood disorders and things like that, especially if they had no history of that beforehand. So um, sort of go back and I know we're finishing up, but to get back to, you know, advice to students who are like thinking about this and how to how can they keep the psychiatry in mind, even though they're on different rotations, I would recommend, you know, taking the consulting service you know taking a rotation there Mm -hmm. because again that's going to throw you across the entire hospital you're going to be seeing consults from every sort of unit from every single patient from every single medical diagnosis so of course you're not going to be managing them medically but sort of it puts their foot in the door into like understanding the patient as a whole oh yeah you're talking about about psychiatric consults right yes (laughs) love it well, Dr. Weber, thanks for joining us to talk about MedPsych, a really interesting uh, specialty. Is there a website that you prefer to direct students to to find out more about web about MedPsych? Yes, the you know the combined specialties that includes intramedicine psych, family medicine psych. We're we're a small group. It's a small universe that we live in. 
the best place to get connected is to go to the Association of Medicine and Psychiatry. I, the The website address is a little convoluted. So I think if you just Google Association of Medicine and Psychiatry, you will get there. Sometimes it's referred to as AMP, but AMP also brings up a, psych- a molecular a molecular <laughs> specialty. So I wouldn't necessarily Google AMP. One, one more letter <laughs> would have helped but, for uh, the Googling. But if you, if you go to their website, not only is there just a lot of information about what is combined training, what do people do with it? Kind of those basic questions. If you're like, I, I don't have any sense of what this with what this training or specialty might be like. But the the organization itself has an extremely active trainee network. So they have a student organization where students can get involved. They can get scholarships to come to our national meeting every year. That's usually in the fall. Next year, we are in Milwaukee, October 2024. So there's it, it, it. I think it's a great way to get exposure to people. Again, it's a small world. So you, odds are you'd you'd know who all the program directors were for the specialty. You could talk to all those committees are led by people who have done combined training and are kind of in various stages outside of training. They also have really great kind of residency forums and networking as well as early career. There are scholarship opportunities within the Association of Medicine Psychiatry as well. So I usually just direct people. I say, hey, it's it's free to be a student. Go become a student and get like we do residency fairs through through AMP. And so they're all virtual. So about a week before the national conference, before uh, ERAS opens up, we tend to have we we have a residency fair virtually, so students can literally visit every single residency, and you'll you'll sit with a room full of residents and one or two of the staff, and can ask kind of whatever questions would be most helpful to you. So definitely go there. Great, that's our show. AJ, thanks for producing today's show and bringing Dr. Weber to us. Thank you. Thank you. Fallon, Noah, Julie, Nabil, thanks for being a part of it too. No problem. No problem. And what, yep, kind of dopa- and what kind of dopamine ag- antagonist would I be if I didn't thank you, Short Coats, for making us part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available. Like, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. The show is made possible by generous... You know, it's, the show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, student government, and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, short coats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth, I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you and I'm glad you're here and other people are too. This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com.